Hello there. Hi. Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. Yep. And you can find and follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, at From Skirts to Scrubs. And then you can also check us out on Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. Check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, merch, and more. And that's from scrubs.com. Yeah. And you can also subscribe to us on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. And then go ahead and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is a great place for both. And you can also leave ratings on Spotify. Yeah, you can. Alrighty. Today, my first episode back. She's feeling herself. She's getting ready. She's back. She's back. And today we're going to be talking about the history of abortion pills. So throughout the rest of this season and probably beyond, we're going to be discussing abortion, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the consequences of that decision as it relates to us as future medical professionals, but also as women and people who can have, who have uteruses, who can have pregnancies. And so I chose this topic for this episode because it's been something that has been really interesting to me for a while now that I've been wanting to learn about, like even before Roe v. Wade was overturned, I've always been intrigued by like Mm. abortion pills because I don't know that much about them. And I wanted to learn more about the history because honestly, especially now, there's a high likelihood that with Roe v. Wade being overturned, they're going to come for abortion pills next. And I personally just don't know what access to them even looks like right now. Um, So I don't know what it means or what it will mean to lose that access. The reasoning. That's why I wanted to talk about it. So Shar, maybe you know more than I do. Do you have any like initial thoughts? I mean, in general, they're your first line abortions. I guess is my understanding of them. Like earlier abortions are via abortion pills. They're just like medications that can be used in other instances as well. That's pretty good. The two pills that I focused on are like when you think of like medication abortion, um, like inducing abortion, these are the ones that we talk about. So we can just get into it. Let's do it. So I divided this episode into a few parts. The first is just talking about like medication abortion. What is it? I'm going to nerd out in a public friendly kind of way about the science of medication abortion, what happens to the body, et cetera. You're for it. Then we're going to talk about, you know, (laughs) then we're going to talk about the history of medication abortion and then end with kind of where we're at now, what's at stake, what are the state of things, what are folks doing to protect abortion pill access, et cetera. Okay. So that's kind of where we're headed on this journey. Sounds good. We'll start with what is medication abortion. So abortion overall, the term or like what it means is like the termination of pregnancy. We know this. This can either be done through a surgical procedure or by taking medications, which is the medication abortion part of it. Mm-hmm. Medical abortion involves taking two pills. The first is called mifepristone, and it's also called mifeprax or Cormlin or Corlim or um, RU486. It's like a very specific name, but that's mifepristone. The second pill is mesoprostol. So usually you'll take both of these pills, like one after the other with some time in between, and it can induce abortion. Mm -hmm. So the way these pills work is by changing the hormones required for pregnancy. So it's a quick reminder of the menstrual cycle and pregnancy. People that menstruate will shed their uterine lining for usually like five to seven days. And during this time, all your hormone levels, but specifically like estrogen and progesterone are very low. That's like menstruating. Mm -hmm. Everything's low. You're shedding your uterine lining. 
Then for about 14 days, your estrogen levels increase and this thickens your uterine lining. And by the end of that 14 days, these other hormones that aren't super relevant, but I'll just name them. They're called like FSH and LH, follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. They kind of peak. And then this causes your egg to just like shoot out of the ovary. Um, And and then that little eggy will like maybe find a sperm and it'll implant in the like thickened uterine lining that has like basically been growing over 14 days. But if it doesn't find a little sperm friend and it doesn't implant, then you basically go back to the beginning of your cycle where you menstruate. So then the like buildup of that uterine lining comes down and you will bleed for five Mm -hmm. to seven days and then you kind of keep going. So importantly, during that last like 14 days after the egg has been released and the uterine lining stays thickened, the hormone progesterone is really, really high. And that is high so that it can help maintain a really happy environment for the uterus so that this like potential sperm egg combo can implant. Mm -hmm. And if there's implantation, progesterone will stay high all of the pregnancy. And that's important to keep the pregnancy viable. Like you have to have a nice, happy, mushy uterus with lots of progesterone so that this embryo like sperm egg duo can like implant and grow. Yep. If there's not enough progesterone, the pregnancy can't happen. So enter abortion pills, mifepristone and misoprostol. Mifepristone blocks the progesterone basically. And so it will induce like a period and it'll push the uterus to kind of expel its contents. So it's basically like, oh, you're not pregnant. Like the, like, no. <laughs> False alarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh no, you're not pregnant. And then about 24 to 48 hours later, the patient will take mesoprostol, which is kind of like, like if mifepristone is like shaking up the uterus being like, Hey, you're not pregnant. The mesoprostol is like the, the bouncer at the bar. Who's like, get out. (laughs) You can't be in here. And so they like push and empty the uterus through bleeding and muscle contractions. And that's how that works. So there's mifepristone, the shaking up. It's that dude at the bar who's like causing a problem, shaking up, all this stuff and misoprostol, the bouncer who pushes everyone out. Cause he's like, gotcha. no, not anymore. Yes. So as you probably, or maybe able to imagine, this can be very painful um, as it can cause intense cramping, heavy bleeding. And usually that is about like three to five hours after taking both of these pills. Some people don't have any issues at all. Some people are like, oh, I didn't even notice. Some people are like, it was extremely painful. It really varies. Um, But for those who say it's really bad, they describe it as kind of like having a very bad period. Okay. Um, Yeah. And then within 14 days of taking the medicine, um, both of the medicines, the patient will usually go back to a health clinic or a doctor's office, get a lab test, like a HCG, like a pregnancy test or an ultrasound to confirm complete abortion. And then after this point, like in a month, or two months, I think usually about a month, like one cycle, they'll, they'll go back to having regular periods. Okay. So the question is like, when can you have medical abortions? Do you have any ideas? Um, it's early in the pregnancy. That's all I know, like up to a certain amount of weeks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they can be taken obviously immediately after someone finds out they're pregnant. And then up to 10 weeks of gestational age. And this kind of depends on like the source you look at. Like I think the World Health Organization says you can technically take it up to 12 weeks, which is the first trimester. Mm -hmm. Others say like 11 weeks, 10 weeks, but typically between like 10 and 12 weeks. To be honest, it doesn't really matter because it's all very state dependent if you're Mm. living in the United States. So of course, like- this varies by state. So for example, Texas banned taking these medications starting at seven weeks. 
So okay. you can't take it like beyond seven weeks. Um, and then Indiana banned it starting at 10 weeks. And then others are more around the like 10, 12 kind of week mark. Gotcha. Um, and then many states have other restrictions, not just when you can start taking the pill, but restrictions on where you can get the pills and like who can give you the pills. So a doctor, like sometimes in some states, a doctor must be in the room when you take the pill, both pills. <laughs> Or one pill, it like, yeah, it depends. So they kind of put that restriction on you. Mm -hmm. A couple quick notes about medication abortion before we move on to the history um, is that there are certain groups that cannot take this medication for abortion. Um, So specifically people who've had a previous ectopic pregnancy, which is when a fertilized egg implants somewhere that's not the uterus, very commonly like in the fallopian tube or at the, like, in like the wrong parts of the uterus or in Mm -hmm. the ovary or like outside of the uterus, really crazy places. Um, literally anywhere. I know. But if you're, if you had an ectopic pregnancy, you can't have a medication abortion. And then also people who have an IUD in, which makes sense. Yeah. If the mesoprostol is going to push everything out, it's going to push out your IUD and it's gonna be very painful be very dangerous. Um, but if you get the IUD removed, then you can take the medicine. Gotcha. Um, and then also people on long-term steroids. And then of course, if you have like allergies to estrogen, progesterone containing drugs, you should not should. be taking. But to clarify, cause this can be confusing. Medication abortion is different from plan B, which Plan B is considered emergency contraception. So the way that pill works is that it prevents or delays the release of the egg. So it prevents ovulation, whereas abortion pills themselves prevent the viability of the pregnancy from continuing, which is why the window to take a abortion pill is much longer than like plan, plan B, B is which like is 72 about hours. Like 72 hours. Yeah. Yeah. But it works less yeah. with more time to so take it immediately. I have a question. Um, before mm-hmm. you can be prescribed the two pills, do you have to have like a verified intrauterine pregnancy? Because you know how all pregnancies are considered ectopic until proven otherwise is like the saying in OB. So I just, I wonder how that works. You mentioning that people who had previous ectopics can't have it. And I'm assuming it's because they're at risk for more ectopics. So they need to make sure or something. Mm -hmm. But I was, I don't know if they double checked that or not, I guess before. I don't actually know the screening involved in what, like how to qualify people, but you do need to have like previous screening. Okay. Um, And so I imagine that that does involve. Yeah. But the thing that is interesting that I don't know exactly how they work around it is like, and we'll talk about this in a second, but mm-hmm. you can have an online appointment yeah, to be prescribed this too. medication. And so as a result, I don't know how you would know that you have an intrauterine pregnancy okay. um, yeah. in that case. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, huh, maybe I'll ask someone. I don't know. Um, but the abortion pill or the abortion pills themselves are highly effective in a study of over 13,000 women. Um, it showed that the efficacy of the two drugs together was 97.7% for pregnancies up to nine weeks. So highly effective in producing a complete abortion. Um, the further in weeks you get out or like the, you know, further Mm -hmm. apart you take the medications, they might not work as well, but um, pretty efficacious for two drugs that you take together. So then I did some looking into the history of medication abortion, which is real fun. Um, <laughs> but I know, I know it's like funny. Cause it's, I talk a lot about the past and then suddenly it jumps to the present. Fun fact in colonial America, mm-hmm. abortion wasn't just legal, but it was a safe condoned and highly practiced procedure. And abortions yeah. were allowed, like the time frame, because it's not like they had ultrasounds and stuff. So 
abortions were actually allowed up until the mother felt what's called the quickening, which is when the baby's first kick was felt, um, Mm. which is typically between like 14 and 26 weeks, which is like way beyond when we like stop allowing abortions. And typically it was trusted midwives and medical practitioners, specifically midwives though, who were doing abortions in early American life. And then also throughout world history. But this episode isn't about the history of abortion. So let's focus on the non-surgical medication abortion. So Char, how do you think medical abortions were done in early history? With herbs, probably. (laughs) I was like, they gave them medication. (laughs) Yeah. So with, I literally wrote, yes, with herbs and things. (laughs) I was like, I figured she'd get it. Um, But actually, surgical abortions were pretty rare and dangerous. So women would take these things called abortifacients. They were herbs to induce abortions. (laughs) And some of these included herbs like tansy, safflower, mugwort, wormwood, pennyroyal, et cetera. I don't know what any of these are. Safflower. Yeah, I've never heard of them, but we got to work on our plan game, I guess. The trouble was that the amount of these herbs that one needed to ingest to get like a good chemical dose in their system probably was very high. And so then, yeah. And so then they would end up actually having like toxic effects on the mother's kidney. Oh no. Yeah. Not amazing, but like, you know, the lengths that you will go to abort an unwanted pregnancy. Um, Interestingly, these herbs effects were actually discovered because people would notice what plants would cause livestock to have fewer offspring. Oh. And then people would, yeah, I know. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And then people would kind of experiment and with the botanical knowledge that they basically gathered, they'd spread it down by word of mouth. Um, And then some things would get written down like, the ancient Egyptians and ancient Greeks, they'd write some things down. And actually a Greek playwright named Aristophanes actually joked about in one of his plays about how a desirable young woman would, quote, trim and spruce herself with pennyroyal. Oh. I don't know what that means, but I'm assuming she'd like cover herself in pennyroyal. And pennyroyal is this like well-known abortion herb. Gotcha. Yeah. Also, disclaimer, this is not medical advice to be going to take a bunch of penny royal yeah, don't do as evidenced by the highly toxic effects on the liver and kidney. But it is interesting to see like what people would do back then. Yeah, for sure. Um, apparently, one plant called silphium was which is like related to giant fennel. Mm. Um, it was popular with ancient Greek and Roman people because it could terminate pregnancies. And a Like there's one theory that it was so popular that in this city state, which at the time was called Serene, like C-Y-R-E-N-E, it's now modern day Libya. But at the time, this city state, its entire economy was literally based around this plant. Oh, really? (laughs) Which was, yeah, it was like used so much. And the historian that was kind of looking into this, I mean, it's just a theory, but like it's a known abortion plant and there was no other like use for it really it wasn't something that people ate a lot like for nutrition and he he saw just like records of how much people were buying of it and he was like is this all for abortion um and I kind of like that theory I'm like yeah this entire city state the economy was running on this abortion plant (laughs) it probably was So this concept of medication abortion has been around for a really long time, but the abortion pills themselves actually haven't been around for that long. So mifepristone and misoprostol were created in the 1980s. Mifepristone specifically was developed by a French drug company. And more specifically, the scientist who kind of discovered it, his name is Emile Baulio. And he's actually still alive today. He like lives in Paris. Uh, He's very disturbed by everything going on in in the U.S., as I read in one article. I'm sure. I am, too. Um, And yes, I feel (laughs) you, Emile. Um, But France 
legalized the medication regimen of like, you know, these two drugs, legalized the two drugs in 1988. And then China, Great Britain, Sweden followed. And now like 60 countries like have it as like a legal thing. Um, But the United States actually didn't get FDA approval for the drugs until 2000, because between 1988 and 2000, basically anti-abortion groups were delaying the approval like as much as possible. I'm not surprised because the FDA, we always lag behind like Europe in like medical advancements like yeah. they always do something and then like we do something like much later it just takes a lot longer to get verified here many factors yeah unfortunately uh yeah absolutely and through the 90s well like in 1989 it started with the bush the like first bush administration the fda banned the importation of these medications from like other countries for personal use so that was 1989 and then in 1992 an American woman named Leona Benton was actually caught by U.S. Customs bringing these meds with her from mm. Europe. But then the Supreme Court like refused to hear her case. And then they also refused to order the FDA to overturn the ban. So they kind of, I don't know, it kind of like ended yeah. in nothing, like a stalemate. Then in 1993, so one year later, Bill Clinton asked the FDA to re-examine the import ban. After that point, basically like slowly over seven years with like multiple court battles, et cetera. Um, the approval came. So that was in 2000. Yeah. So very new. When the pills first became available, they were only available up to like seven weeks after pregnancy. Okay. So I don't know the, the issues with those things are like, you sometimes don't even know you're pregnant. Like that's literally the earliest you could mm-hmm. know, whatever. Um, But then at that time, women receiving it would have to visit the clinic three times. So the first time would be to take the mifepristone. The second time would be to take the mesoprostol. And then the third would be for follow-up. Okay. So you had to like go to clinic every time to take the pills and Mm -hmm. then follow up. Um, But then in 2016, the FDA extended the like pregnancy period to 10 weeks. And then... Now and then they also decreased the number of required visits to two visits, which then meant that women could start taking the second drug, like the mesoprostol at home, which was really nice for like comfort and stuff like that. It's actually like most of the history of medication abortion. It started out as like herbs and plants and people just kind of doing what they could. And then with the advent of this actual medication in the 80s. Um, it really kind of took off. Yeah. That's so recent, actually. I know. I did not realize how recent because abortion in general is much older, like surgical abortion. So yeah. Yeah. And then that doesn't even like we're not even talking about surgical abortion, but that stuff all, you know, the ways that women and people have taken on their own Mm -hmm. ways of doing abortion is like a whole other scope um but in thinking about medication abortion today so a research team from ucsf middlebury college and the guttmacher institute which is Mm -hmm. like a reproductive rights think tank it's super famous um they did like a study or they were doing research um before Roe v. Wade got overturned, where they were estimating the number of legal abortions that would decrease in the U.S. if Roe v. Wade were overturned. So now that it's actually being overturned, the thought is that um, the number of legal abortions in the United States will fall by at least 13 Mm percent. Yeah. But what's interesting in why it probably won't fall more or like the thought at least was that it wouldn't fall like more is because medication abortion is still an option Mm, okay yeah but for women in places that have you know like that have banned abortion um the travel the average travel distance to the nearest clinic increased from 33 miles 
to 282 miles, which is a huge barrier and like absolutely going to keep people from getting abortions for sure. Yeah. And then a study from the, again, from the Guttmacher Institute from February of this year, so 2022, found that an estimated 54% of people chose medication abortion as their preferred abortion method back in 2020. Yeah. And this is up from the 39% in 2017. So more and more people are preferring medication abortion for many reasons, including it's less invasive, you can have privacy, and what people also don't think about, I don't know, at least maybe this is me postulating. Mm -hmm. What I imagine is like people think that, you know, the decision to have an abortion is taken extremely lightly, that it's just really easy. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take this pill and be done with it. But oftentimes it's extremely traumatic for people and it's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. And so going into a clinic where you're getting yelled at and berated on your way in, first of Mm -hmm. all, to be in this like sterile room where they're doing a surgical procedure on you is not going to make you feel more comfortable. But you understand that in your life, and your circumstance, that's what you have to Mm -hmm. do. But the idea of being able to take pills at home with your support system around you and just like going, coping through it yourself um, is obviously very appealing to people and is evidenced by the fact that rates of medication abortion have increased. Mm -hmm. And then to get abortion pills, there's a program called the Mifepristone Shared R-E-M-S, which stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy Program. This program is basically set up by the FDA because it's the program that they use for special drugs to make sure that the benefits of taking those drugs outweigh the risks. So there's other drugs in this category. There's like cancer meds and antipsychotics, opioids, things like Mm -hmm. that. So like testosterone's in there, very high profile drugs that, you know, we do not even just prescribe lightly. Yeah. Um, The abortion pills are a part of that. Um, And you have to be a very specific qualified provider to be able to prescribe these medications. So not any physician can prescribe abortion pills. You have to like go through specific training to be an abortion provider. Yeah. Yeah. And something that has come up that is like a hot topic right now, validly, is this idea of telehealth and using telehealth to access abortion pills. Mm -hmm. So currently telehealth is an option to obtain abortion pills in 19 states. So a person can call a provider by phone or text them or whatever and receive pills by mail if they live in a state where abortion is legal. And actually in December of 2021, the FDA approved a restriction that they had that kept pills from being mailed to patients. So before you would have to like go pick up the abortion pills. Now you can get them mailed, which is great because it increases access by a ton. Largely that was thanks to COVID, um, right? I, yeah, it started, be, yeah, a lot of it was because of COVID mm-hmm. um, and people just not, not being able to get to a doctor. but some caveats were that like you had to be in a state where you could get screening, counseling, and instructions on how to take the pill from a medical provider. But all of that happened online. So that's why I'm not 100% sure about the answer to your question of like, how do they guarantee that it's not an ectopic pregnancy? Yeah. Um, Because sometimes- Unless you can take these pills for ectopic pregnancy. No, the FDA states that mifepristone is not effective for the treatment of ectopic pregnancy. In a study of 212 patients randomized to treatment of mifepristone with methotrexate or just methotrexate, the success rate of the combined therapy was 83% um, compared to 38% of just methotrexate alone, which is good. The issue is that mifepristone lists ectopic pregnancy as a contraindication to its administration. So even though mifepristone is theoretically like better than just methotrexate alone mm-hmm. in treating an ectopic pregnancy, 
the FDA says that mifepristone is not effective for the treatment of ectopic pregnancy and also recently issued a warning about sepsis, which is like full body, like disease, like infection and badness. Yeah. Um, that can occur after medical abortions with mifepristone hmm. if you have an ectopic pregnancy. So it's pretty dangerous. Well, good to know. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. I actually don't know. I don't know about that. I'm going to ask, but to be on OB in two weeks, three weeks, I'm going to be on OB in two yeah. weeks. So I'm going <laughs> to ask, but there are options for people who live in states where you can't access pills online um, because you can right now, at least cross borders, okay. you can do like cross-border care across state lines. Mm-hmm. And there are options for people who live in states that abortion's not legal or, you know, they don't have access to pills online. And it's because of the interconnectedness of states and cross-border care that you still have access to right now um, as it stands. And so this, and honestly, this means of care is only going to increase because now so many states have restricted abortion access, but the anti-abortion legislators and activists, of course, are trying to figure out a way to make this not allowed. Mm -hmm. This does become tricky for them though, because it would go against the constitution to bar interstate trade. And so I actually don't know. I don't know enough necessarily about legislation to know where this is going to go, but I'm extremely interested in seeing how it pans out. Um, But for right now, this like interstate trade vibe is offering a small level of protection. Makes sense. Now, President Biden has said he's committed to ensuring that abortion pills remain legal and available. Not sure how he's going to do that, but like the love <laughs> the commitment the is there. <laughs> yeah, I'm like super here for it, but let's see how that yeah. goes. Um, yeah, as much as I like sometimes trust the government, sometimes don't, I do have faith in women and women have been finding loopholes. So mm-hmm. they, two loopholes that they have found, well, I guess three, if you count this like cross- state, you know, trade, Mm -hmm. but one is that they've been forwarding the pills. So there are some groups, one of them specifically is called plan C. Mm -hmm. So like, if you check out plan C, something that they've done is they've publicly like posted instructions, step-by-step instructions for how to like, for example, if you're a person in an abortion restricted state, like Texas, Mm -hmm. you could set up a mail forwarding account to an address in an abortion legal state like Colorado like Mm. you can like they have a way for you to like find an address there that you can have as your like mailing address and so then it'll send your medications to Colorado and then those medications get sent to you in Texas Mm -hmm. So technically like the prescribing location is like an abortion legal state, but it's making its way to you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I don't know the details of how they do that, but I imagine it's like all part of the organization, which is very cool. And then some, the other thing that, you know, women have been doing and people have been doing to try to protect abortion rights is a lot of abortion providers are kind of taking on this don't ask, don't tell policy where they really don't ask direct questions to the patient Mm -hmm. about like, when exactly did you get pregnant? Like, what's the deal? Mm -hmm. They kind of just ask vague questions enough to understand the story. And then this creates like a plausible deniability Mm -hmm. because they never asked. So then they never had to get the answer. So so then like eight weeks versus nine weeks versus 10 weeks or something like that. Yeah. Like it's like, oh, I just never knew. So therefore I prescribed it and it was okay. Yeah. So, um, and then the other thing is like, if a patient has an address in a state that allows abortion, you can just send the prescription right there. Kind of like the first loophole. So people have been doing that a lot, sending it to like family members and then having the family members send things over or friends or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But there are, of course, many issues with this. Like this is how we've been coping for now, but there's just bigger issues and bigger fish to fry. So like 
in terms of access, first of all, many Americans don't know what medication abortion even is. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know about it until I did research for this episode. Like I didn't know the full extent of like what that looked Mm -hmm. like. Um, And without knowing of a safe option, there is a lot of concern that many will turn to unsafe options Mm -hmm. like physical trauma, which has been done in the past, as we know. Um, And then another issue is that people don't know how to find and use medication abortion properly. And if they're, you know, getting pills from somewhere, but not having proper medical care to guide them through, it's different than just taking, you know, like an over-the-counter medication it can have consequences that are dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to get medical care, but now there's a huge disconnect between getting that medical care and having it be legal for you to take these pills. Um, And so people are taking them for reasons that are like, for people are taking them when they're contraindicated too. So Mm. for all the reasons I said above, like we talked about having an ectopic, having an IUD and people don't know when and when they can take or not take medications. And so they're taking them um, and that's not safe at all. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, I mean, the biggest issue of all of this, right. And the reason we're talking about it is the legal risks involved Mm. because the personal has is and will always be political in this realm. So even though abortion pills are safe and effective, taking them in a state with an abortion ban is a risk. And I I read something that was really interesting. It was like, now that in-state abortion providers, like they can't practice anymore, right? So there's no longer like clear targets mm-hmm. to to sue or be upset with. And so now anti-abortion legislators and prosecutors will start targeting patients who are taking these pills. It's crazy. So for example, I know, in for example, in Texas, Lizelle Herrera was arrested and charged with murder in connection with an alleged self-induced abortion. Yeah, that's crazy. The charge was, I know. Isn't that crazy? Like there's people who the literally murder dropped. people and you are at the same I know, level I know. legally. That's insane. Yeah. Yep. The charge was later dropped, but even so, like it was on like a technicality. Like there's going to be more lawsuits like this that are not going to get dropped. Wow. Uh-huh. But yeah, this is just the beginning of this. and women, people with uteruses, people who can become pregnant, they, we now have less and less choice over what happens to our bodies. Mm -hmm. And basically there's a lot that's up in the air. We don't know how it's going to play out, Mm -hmm. but I found this quote by Gia Tolentino, who's a writer for the New Yorker, who's lovely. And she I just like, like this quote, she said, abortion pills mm-hmm. are among the reason that we are not going to go back to an era of coat hangers. But now the question is with legislation mm-hmm. changing so quickly and abortion pills coming under attack, what are we going to do? Yeah. And I think that's like the big question that we all have to sit with. tell me what are you thinking about the thing that's at the top of my mind a lot of the like um how it works in history like all those things make sense and none of it really shocked me but something I was thinking about is just more like the modern day use of the pills and like have to take them like um you were saying like used to have to go and take the first one in an office the second one in the office and then have a follow-up to ensure the pregnancy is gone and now some places um, allow you to just take the first one in the office or, and then have the follow-up. Mm-hmm. And then now you can get it at home um, and, and the follow-up's unsure. But I guess apart from the, right. I was just thinking a lot about like people actually following up because the patient population I work with is really bad about continuity. Just like people don't come back ever. So mm-hmm. it's a really big thing. In like what I've seen in clinicals, mm-hmm. you get everything done 
possible. Like, it's not like, oh, at the next appointment, we'll do this. Like, no, you do literally everything because you don't know if they're going to come back for whatever their personal reasons is. Like, it's not bashing on Mm -hmm. them for not coming back. It's just, that's the reality of it. So for me, I was thinking like, okay, if I Mm -hmm. saw a patient that would be in the situation, like, what would you do if they were required to have various appointments to like complete the course? But what if they don't return? So like, then I was like, okay, that's good that you can take the second pill at home and now you can have the pills more available through the mail. But my other wondering is if you do need to have a follow-up appointment and it is legal for you, you don't get it. Like I, or even just in general, like if it's illegal for you to go have a follow-up appointment because you're taking it illegally, I just wonder what happens to women who is like that point two percent that it doesn't work or something and like what that looks like that's my thought because when I was on um OB-GYN there was like an ectopic pregnancy list I know we're not talking about ectopic pregnancy but it was like the same idea that women who came Mm. in for ectopic pregnancy treatment there was like a list that they'd have to review each week because they'd have to call those women and either make sure they come back in and get their like you know, another pregnancy test basically to make sure it was gone. Or if they did have a test done and it wasn't gone, they need to come back in and get treatment again. They would have to call them to make sure. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times like those women were never followed up with because they never answered the phone calls or um, got the letters or they didn't ever come back in. And it was just was kind of like, well, we did all we could and we hope that she's like, all right, kind of thing. So that I thought was interesting thing when I was on OB and that reminds me of the situation now just in yeah. terms of like terminating a pregnancy without medical supervision um I don't know the answers but those were just like my thoughts running through my head doing this whole discussion. no that's really interesting and I don't know I mean like that is the question right because this is not a new issue like p- patients right. this follow-up is difficult at a baseline in general <laughs> yeah. and then now with these like added legal ramifications how is follow-up change? And then also something that I think about, especially in this like virtual kind of world that we live in with the virtual care, like how much of the physical exam matters for like a post, like, you know, abortion follow-up does, do you need to do like a speculum exam? Do you, do you not, do you just go based off of symptoms? And then if that's the case, do you just like warn moms of certain symptoms and then say like if you're experiencing this within the next week like yeah maybe you miss your follow-up but like you need to call like you need to go to the ed if this happens or like you need to call kind of like warning signs because like we do that a lot with patients go home take this medicine but like here are the warning signs to look for and if that happens call us back immediately or like go to the ed yeah even when you like leave the hospital, they're like, okay, you're, you know, you're very stable. You, we are letting you go home fully confident that you will be okay. But in case these things happen, you need to return. Like, it's just, yes. What you so do. I wonder <laughs> what those things are for ectopic pregnancy. Like maybe it's sepsis. Maybe it's like, if you spike a fever or you start experiencing like XYZ type of pain, you need to come back. Um, but then that becomes a problem or go to an ED, which then is like further adding to this like complexity of like, if you're now in a state that abortion is illegal and you have a complication and you have to go to the ED, do you then like, then what happens? Yeah. To you? I think it depends on the state, whether the laws are around the patient or on the provider, because if they're on the patient, then you are personally at risk going in the ED. But if you go to, but if they're on the provider and you go ED, they may not do anything. You know, they might just like do supportive care, but they like might not be able to do much in that instance. Also sad. Yeah. Many questions. Lots of questions. Lots of questions. My thoughts. Um, My other question kind of, we touched on a little bit already, but like with your story about the ectopic pregnancy that you saw, but I guess I'm wondering like, if you've had any experience with abortion pills in the clinical space or any conversations about abortion and like, how did they go? I didn't have much, but I had, I did have one patient that I didn't directly speak to. I was with the chief resident and she was doing it just because it was a really complex patient. She, she wanted to do it, (laughs) but I was there in the room 
And it wasn't about abortion pills, but it was about abortion. And it was really interesting. It was, I was on my GYN weeks and basically she came in because she had hyperemesis gravidorum, which is when you throw up so much during pregnancy. And it's not just like normal morning sickness that people have in the first trimester. It is like Mm. over the top causing you to be hospitalized because you are so dehydrated and everything's going wrong in your body. And this woman, this was her second pregnancy. Her first pregnancy, she also had hyperemesis gravidorum and she had it again, second pregnancy. She had just went home, had to get readmitted, like losing weight, can't eat, terrible. And like, do you want this pregnancy? And the patient said, no, I can't take care of my current daughter because of this pregnancy. She was like, I can't go to work. I can't like be a mom. I can't do anything. Like I'm in the hospital. I can't afford little bills. So she wanted to terminate pregnancy. And honestly, the conversation went so smooth. Um, For the hospital that I do my rotations at, they don't do abortions in the hospital, but there's a specific abortion clinic associated with the hospital system is my understanding of it. So all patients get referred to that clinic. Um, And I think there's like a couple OB guys who specifically work there. Um, Mm. So they were like, okay, like we... We, so we had to do an ultrasound to do like the procedures of like how far along she was and things like that. And then we were able to like get her the information to go to the abortion clinic once she was discharged. Um, and it was, I was, it was a very seamless conversation. Like I wasn't expecting the resident to ask if she was interested in like keeping the child or not, because um, I've only asked patients that at their very first pregnancy visit, like when you go to confirm your pregnancy and it's like your first prenatal visit, they ask you like, oh, is this intended? And would you like to keep it? I don't know if that will change now in certain states, but that's how it was. And I was on my rotation a couple months ago. But this was someone who was much farther along and they asked it. And she was, and she was so relieved to be like, no, I don't want to do this. Like I literally cannot do this. Um, so I don't know, that story really touched me. I think about that a lot. I think about it when like there's discussion, like legal discussions of, oh, like what about abortions for medical reasons? Because like this is a woman who wanted an abortion for a medical reason because she was like so medically ill, but technically she wasn't dying. But like, what would that have done to her and her like for the next nine months? Probably really terrible things. So I always think about that when people like discuss the reasons people get abortions are like medically warranted reasons yeah. um, that people try to justify as, oh, well, they can abortion for this reason, but not this reason. Like, where is the line? So that's my experience. Yeah. I haven't had my ob rotation yet, but I know that I haven't mm-hmm. had like mm-hmm. discussions about abortion necessarily. Um, but on family medicine, like we had a really interesting lecture yeah. because some family medicine providers do choose to become abortion providers. And so then the discussion was actually about abortion pills. Um, and that was like the first time I'd heard of them. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to look into this more. But yeah, something I've been thinking about a lot is this concept of science and how like science in some realms and a lot in the past, maybe I can conjecture mm-hmm. like science was really valued. It was like, oh, this has scientific data. It's backed by science, right? So it makes sense that we like, we'll trust it. And I don't know when the switch happened. Maybe Mm. it was like prior to 2016. Maybe it was during 2016. Maybe it was whatever. But now I just feel like if you argue that something has a scientific basis, like for example, your patient with hyperemesis syndrome, like it's a medical reason for her to terminate the pregnancy. Mm suddenly that like doesn't matter (laughs) suddenly the science doesn't matter and I was reading this really interesting article where the writer was talking about how we're giving so much autonomy to the unborn embryo Mm -hmm. that we give them more like bodily autonomy and rights than like a full-blown pregnant person yeah yeah And that's a crazy concept to me. And I don't want to get into it a ton right now, but it's something I'm sitting with a lot. Yeah. Also the idea of like, where does science come into play? Like what part of the spectrum is it okay to have an abortion? It's, it's the art of medicine. Like the idea that medicine is not like it is structured and it is an algorithm, but it's also an art of 
having enough knowledge and experience right. to like make diet, yeah. like decisions in the moment. And as I've gone through rotations, I've heard just like a lot of doctors talk about that now. They'll be like, well, we're at, we're at this standpoint and it's the art of medicine at this point where you have to make the decision based on your own experiences and like consulting and talking to other people where there's no like right answer. It's what you think is right in that moment. And I like that part of medicine. I think it's really interesting. I love like the debate between doctors of like discussing, not debate, but like the discussion of like, what's the right treatment? Where should we go forward? Especially in internal medicine. But at this point, it's kind of the lawmaker is trying to do that. Like trying to decide at what point is it okay to have an abortion? They're trying to like fiddle with that art of medicine part. But you can't do that if you don't have the expertise that allows you to like, make an art and less of a science at the point, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, as physicians, which we're not physicians, but one day as physicians, we will be paid for our clinical reasoning. That Mm -hmm. is why we get paid. Yeah. And we go through school to obtain and like learn this art of clinical reasoning. It's Mm -hmm. not cut and dry all the time. And so you're so right. It's like, you went to law school cool like you don't have this like clinical judgment that just Mm -hmm. takes years to to develop so it's a it's a frustrating time um and maybe it's always been this frustrating but I guess like as we kind of go along in this journey we just are seeing it more um so even if it has existed like it's the first time that we're kind of being faced with it and it's a lot to carry, but I mean, it is what it is and it is what we have to do. And yeah, I think arming ourselves mm-hmm. with knowledge and understanding is what we're doing now. So if you enjoyed this discussion and you want to hear more, you can subscribe to the podcast. We're on all the podcasting apps. Then you can also leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Yeah, you can also follow us on social media. Um Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those things. And you also can check out our website for more information and our show notes, sources, merch, all that at fromscrubscrubs.com. And lastly, here is to the women who have fought for us to be where we are today. And maybe do the same for those who come after us. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Yeah, see you next time. Bye.